There's nothing worse than going out to a farm when everyone's drunk and can't hold their horse and we're putting it back together. Make your veterinarian happy and not send us up. Welcome back to Horse Talk with Docs. I'm Doc Yardley and with me today is Dr. Timko. Dr. Timko has returned from the steamy south, Texas, where she went to a conference for the past week, I think. Much. A week, yeah. It was like 110 degrees every day. Uh, she was in Austin at uh, the College of Internal Veterinary Medicine. So this is a specialty college. So once you go to veterinary school, you graduate from vet college, and then you do another internship residency program, so four or five more years of learning. Then you take some more testing and more case reports and publish, and then you can become a diplomat to the American College of Veterinary Medicine. So this is the best and the brightest at this conference, and I thought it would be interesting, uh, Dr. Timko, talk about some of the or highlight some of the topics that, sh that she learned about. You know, this is could be a very uh, geeky podcast. I'm just gonna warn you, so if you're not ready to geek out with us, just hang up and come back next week. If you wanna learn about Tyler's disease, parvo disease, and the horse, maybe some metformin, some controversy on the old metformin, and I'd like Dr. Timko to talk about her abstracts that she presented. That's what we have in today's session. So if you, again, are bored about, I uh, don't wanna learn about parvovirus and the horse, hang up now. But otherwise, we're gonna get started. Parvovirus, Dr. Timko, is this, has been associated with what what disease? So previous, well, still known as Tyler's disease. It was named after a human that kind of discovered it after they did these mass kind of vaccination protocols on horses for tetanus and used um, biological samples so horses that produced antibodies to tetanus and then they vaccinated other horses using that plasma to provide antibodies to other horses so that's the tetanus antitoxin mm -hmm. right so we we've used this product for for quite a while um, the antitoxin and you know if your horse wasn't vaccinated or you know stepped on a rusty nail your veterinarian is probably going to give it a tetanus booster and then the antitoxin booster which has antibodies and I think the most easy way to think about it it would be like if you had COVID and you got the COVID plasma mm -hmm. the biologics the hyperimmune plasma to try to fight off COVID because you had different the someone else donated their antibodies to you so kind of the same on the horse so these horses I think they died pretty quickly some of them some of them did and some of them didn't and I mean as you guys all know there's a lot of regulations if you donate blood or if you're gonna give plasma to look for infectious diseases and you know some of these things we didn't know about previously and that's kind of what happened in these cases is these horses had an organism that caused a disease that we didn't know about until they you know helped out other horses yeah and i think we just they named it who they named tyler's disease after dr tyler dr tyler he named it after <laughs> himself he observed it this was what in the 70s it's maybe been a while it's yeah. a long time ago so this you know this old this old man it named. was with um african horse sickness actually it wasn't even with tetanus. oh really it was to um there was a big African horse sickness outbreak. Okay. And not in the United States. No, <laughs> it's a African horse sickness is a foreign animal disease <laughs> yeah. this, at this point. So that's when they discovered it is when they did this kind of vaccination protocol series okay. with these horses that were affected with African horse sickness. Oh, super interesting. I did not know that. So when these horses would get sick, so we just assumed it was just a random, like, I feel like we, we, we learned in vet school that it was just some immune-mediated disease process. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, we didn't know 
what it what it was, if it was a virus, a bacteria, just an immune reaction. I don't think until just recently we started screening for what virus we're about to talk about, right? No, so I mean, you know, we you might hear us talk about having a shortage of tetanus antitoxin and the reason or part of the reason for that is that we've now discovered what virus causes this disease and have needed to start screening all of these horses for this disease. Yeah, so this is so I don't know for people if you guys remember Ryan White. Dr. Tim goes too young to know Ryan White. I don't know why. I think I watched a Lifetime story. Ryan White was a was a hemophiliac who died of AIDS in 1984, because at in the 80s they weren't screening blood for AIDS, and didn't we didn't know. we didn't know what it was. So now we screen blood. I shouldn't say AIDS for HIV, which is the virus that has passed, not AIDS. It's a syndrome, right? So Ryan White. So yeah, kind of the same thing. We just uh, we don't know what it is, and I think this is another example of how science marches forward and you have to keep exactly. asking questions. So this disease, this parvovirus, has only recently been discovered in the last five years. Yeah, I never, I never knew about it. I don't even, are we even teaching the students about it? No, the students ask them about it. They do know okay. now. They do. <laughs> they do. They are being caught up. I love it. I love <laughs> that we're teaching our students about it. I need to change them in my lecture one little put little sentence about parvovirus. Okay, so who's doing all this research? So out of, mostly out of Cornell, they're putting out a lot of the research in it. They have a herd of horses that they have been able to study over the last few years with um, transmission and just learning the clinical signs and, you know, how, how this virus can be transferred from horse to horse without these blood products being used to Okay. And so parvovirus, I mean, dogs have parvovirus, but I'm mm -hmm. assuming it's a little different than in the dog, right? It is. So parvovirus in the horse, at least the one that causes this Tyler's disease, um, seems to mostly affect the liver. So these horses are getting acute hepatic necrosis and pretty severe liver disease that they end up dying from pretty rapidly. So they turn yellow before they die, or they just die? They usually have clinical signs. Okay. Um, however, the horses that go on and progress and get very severely sick, they, they will die. The other horses that seem to recover, they will continue to have parvovirus and test positive for parvovirus for, for potentially years. Ooh, so they can have, that, that, could, be, that could be problematic. Mm -hmm. Especially for our blood donor herds. Or if it's shed. Herd of parvovirus, what did they do to like kind of discover parvovirus? Like what was their research? I think they just started going back and looking at all of the blood products and they have um, this panel that looks at all of these different basically hepatic hepatitis viruses in horses and they've even recently in the last two years changed that panel. There was a virus on that panel called Tyler's Disease Associated Virus, which is like a peggy virus. We made that up, didn't we? Because that's what yeah. we thought it was. Yeah. And it turns out um, Tyler's Disease Associated Virus does not cause Tyler's disease. Is someone going to rename so, it? They talk about renaming this. It is peggy virus 2. Okay. But so it actually doesn't cause really anything, and we should forget about it now. I'm not even going to learn about it. So, I've never even heard about it before, so it's great. So peggy virus 2, does it do anything to the horses? Not that we need to worry about at this time that we know about. Okay. Well, we'll move on with that then. So no peggy virus, even though it's been named after the disease mm -hmm. that would be a great boards question for the and students when i first started my residency that was on the panel that i used to send out and really think that that was part of the disease process but now when you send the panel out it only has hepacity virus and parvovirus okay 
And can these horses with the parvovirus transmit to one another without blood product? They can. They can. And that is the current major area of investigation that they're kind of working on is how are these horses transmitting this? Because there are horses in herd that are testing positive but have never received a tetanus antitoxin or plasma. And so there is some way. They did a test or a study using flies Mm -hmm. to see if they could transmit it through fly bites and not these horses have a very variable viremia so the amount of virus in the bloodstream that can be taken up by a fly and then given to another horse so it seems very unlikely that it's by a fly bite and more likely they've associated it with aerosolized shedding and their nasal passages and potentially feces and feces well it goes back to the liver Mm -hmm. you know some excrete some stuff in the bile that would make sense so they they can spread it horse to horse okay so do you think that with if they're spreading horse to horse should like our average client be worried about it like what should we do no right now um and they emphasize this at the conference we don't know quite enough about what horses are getting it how they're shedding it it takes about 18 months for them to potentially test positive after they've been exposed. So we don't have any way right now to figure out ways to isolate or ways to test everyone. The only ones we're really testing are horses that we are taking blood products from so that we don't infect other horses from that blood product. But if a client calls us out for a horse that's not doing well, mm-hmm. ADR and kind of under the weather kind mm-hmm. of feeling. It's a lot of time why as veterinarians we want to do blood work mm-hmm. and this would be something really to check yeah. for. So if we have evidence of liver disease, evidence of liver disease on blood work, um, this is a pretty easy test to send out. You used to also need to send out a liver biopsy sample with it, but you don't have to do that. You liver can just biopsy, send that sounds hard. It is really pretty easy to do. The only risk with that is that horses can bleed afterwards so Mm. it is something that could be done on the field but still wouldn't recommend it due to monitoring afterwards for blood loss so do you put like a little hole in their abdomen and like take some pinches and grab it or just a little um true cut biopsy it's just a big really ultrasound the liver find the liver and oh that's how we do it that's how we do it in dogs so pretty it's it's a very easy procedure it's just yeah, it could bleed a little. Need to be watched afterwards yeah. in case they bleed. I know. True cuts are easy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially with ultrasound. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to do it, but yeah. in theory. Okay. I love doing them. But. All right. So you guys need a liver biopsy done <laughs> by Dr. Timko. She can do it. And maybe if the horse was really had bad liver disease on blood work, we should do a liver biopsy, though. Yes, that would be, you know, we could screen for one of these viruses via blood first. Yeah. And if they were negative and we can't relate it to one of these... There are a lot of other liver diseases that we can't diagnose unless we do a biopsy. A lot of toxins too, right? A lot of toxins out there. Bad weeds like Mm -hmm. PA toxicity. Mm -hmm. Yep, definitely see that in this part of the country. Yeah. That's not the topic of today. So back to the parvovirus, but it goes that way. I mean, that I think that's, that's awesome, right? Because, and I think for people when you're like watching veterinarians work, we might be talking about liver disease and parvo, but we're also thinking of 15 other things it could be, which is why we always want to get to do as much testing as possible. Mm -hmm. I know it can be frustrating to get a negative test, but for us as veterinarians, it's very exciting because it means I can rule out one more disease that you don't have. Mm -hmm. You Um, go down to the next option. Yeah, you go down to the next option. So I, you know, 
I had a similar, I went to the doctor this week and I had a little runny nose and I've been testing myself for COVID all last week and I didn't have COVID and I was like, I should probably go to the doctor. I went to the nurse practitioner. She swabbed my nose twice. One was deep brain biopsy, my endoterminus. <laughs> I cried. That was for COVID. I got an influenza test and a strep biopsy or a culture, I guess. And that um, no, wasn't a culture. PCR, maybe? I don't actually know oh, yeah, what that is. I think they're well, the PCRs. Yeah, they PCR rapid. Really yeah. There. When I asked her if I could have some more diagnostic testing, she's like, no, you just have a virus. Go home. And I was very sad because I really wanted to. And she's like, that's because you're a veterinarian. You want to know the answer. I'm like, okay, I, I think you're right. I do want to know why I'm <laughs> sick and not some magical disease that is circulating in the population. Maybe I just have a different wavelength than she did. The anecdote of that story is that we like to do testing because we want to know what's wrong with your animal. So people, should they be worried about getting an antitoxin if they need it? We're screening no, products we're, now? No, we are screening products. The thing to keep in mind is that if your horse did receive a blood product like plasma, tennis antitoxin, a blood transfusion, and you know, a couple of months down the road start to show some clinical signs of liver disease, this could potentially be associated with that but knowing the cause and being able to screen all of these donor populations um, is going to help dramatically in trying to reduce the amount that this happens. So we have this under control so we don't think it's going to be in the products anymore. Like we're testing for it. And it's, the best of our ability. It's pretty rare anyway. Yeah. We don't okay. see this disease that often Yeah. Um, even before we really knew okay. that this was the cause. So like less than one percent. Not sure on exact percentages, right. but I mean, I honestly, I don't think I'd ever, I'd had one case of parvovirus in yep. the three years of residency. So. All right, so I'm going to go with less than 1%. <laughs> I don't know. I made that statistic up. <laughs> that's, that's kind of interesting. I think that's awesome to say that we now can stop a disease from being spread. Mm -hmm. And that, so if your horse does present with liver disease and we find it on blood work, we probably won't. We'll run this panel. We'll run this panel. Should we isolate that horse? No. No. We don't know enough information don't about know enough. that. All right, so you don't have to isolate. They've probably already all been exposed They've for been months. Exposed, yeah. So it's kind of like us going to the grocery store and some person coughs all over me. They might or might not have COVID. I don't know. Or I got it from the bar I went to. Who knows, yeah. right? It's one of those things we don't really know where it's going to come from. But we have ways to screen for it, which I think is great. Uh, abstracts you presented also had to do with the liver? Also with liver. Also so. with liver. Man, that's a powerful organ. So what, what does, you know, what does the liver even do? Like, what's the purpose of the liver? The liver is basically, one of the main goals of the liver is to kind of detoxify things. Um, waste product that's going through your body, the liver is going to re be responsible for detoxifying a lot of those byproducts. So like, uh, drugs get processed there, Some right? drugs yeah. do, ammonia, things yeah. like that. They have um, different cycles. The hepatocytes are really busy. Cells. And they can regrow, right? You can they cut can. your liver out and it'll regrow. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, until you get to a further end stage liver disease, if the liver becomes fibrosed, it can't, but we're trying to prevent those things from happening. And, and alcoholics, they get fibrosis, right? Mm -hmm. Your liver gets real small. Yeah. Honestly, drinker. that's a similar thing to what my studies were on. There is alcoholic fatty liver disease, but then there's also non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Okay. Both of those can lead to cirrhosis. That's not good. It's not good. So <laughs> so how do I get non-alcoholic? Because with horses, some horses drink beer, right? When they don't, yeah. when they don't sweat, they don't we sweat. give we give them some Guinness. Yeah. I don't think they're drinking enough Guinness to... No, so if a horse is going to get that, it's going to be <laughs> non-alcoholic, yeah. hopefully. So people with metabolic syndrome, so diabetes, insulin dysregulation, 
there has been an uptake in this non-alcoholic fatty liver disease associated with insulin dysregulation. And it results in this fat accumulation in the liver and that leads to inflammation and this inflammation eventually leads to cirrhosis, which is fibrosis and potentially cancer. Oh wow, so all these fat ponies out there running around and mm -hmm. fat horses are maybe at risk, at risk for fatty liver? So we assumed, I mean horses are mammals just like people, so their processes are going to be similar. So we assumed that these horses that were also insulin dysregulated, whether that be due to steroids or diet, um, would also have evidence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, and they do. They so do? They definitely do. We took liver biopsies compared it from control ponies and control horses to horses receiving decks and ponies receiving really sugary diets. And after one week, you can visibly see the amount of fat accumulate in their liver. Wow, like what an amazing study that would be if we did some true cut biopsies on all the horses getting turned out to graze. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So they had insulin resistance. So, so this is another reason to not feed your overweight, insulin-resistant horse high sugary feeds. Mm -hmm. Not only will their feet fall off, they'll get liver cirrhosis. And that's the thing, we don't really know how this is gonna progress in horses. This is kind of newer information. Mm -hmm. We didn't really know if this happened in horses. Um, right now, it seems like laminitis is going to be what kind of gets them first. Yeah. Um, but if one day we get laminitis under control and we can figure out how to resolve or prevent that, down the road, their liver may become affected more clinically. And I would think like there's a lot of ponies with chronic laminitis mm -hmm. that survive. And you look mm -hmm. at the x-rays and you're like, ooh, I don't know how you're doing it, pony. But even some of the whole horses, they have no soul rotation. It's bad. But so now not something else to worry about. So I think that's useful information, especially another reason to monitor your horse's mm -hmm. insulin and carbohydrate intake. Yeah, it's not just the feet. Yeah. Every organ is kind of affected by this. Yeah, so you talked about dexamethasone, which is a corticosteroid. Mm -hmm. So the corticosteroids also cost it? Yes, just as dramatically as the high sugar diet. So if I was just gonna, so if you had like a sport horse, let's mm -hmm. say a dressage horse, and the dressage horse had his joints injected a lot, and those dressage horses are probably overweight to begin with, think that could be some could have some issues there in the liver too potentially yeah. I mean, at least joint injections are just going to be kind of a one time once okay. every couple months if yeah. they are you know a horse with asthma or a horse with an inflammatory bowel condition and we're treating with steroids for one to four weeks i can almost say 100 percent have changes in their liver hmm. definitely our asthma horses probably need to be careful with how much dex we're giving just them another thing to think to about. think about another <laughs> complication of the treatment. The client has informed consent. Like the, is this reversible at all? Yeah, so if you have the fatty infiltration mm -hmm. and the inflammation stages, that's reversible. So if you remove the source or you start treatment, okay. that is reversible. If it gets to cirrhosis or fibrosis, that's no longer reversible. So what is the treatment? So that was one of the other abstracts was looking at our medications that we use for insulin dysregulation. So uh, metformin as well as aspirin was a study that we performed. And when we used the combination of the two, there was a somewhat trend of a decrease. Trend is not significant. 
it was no longer significantly elevated. Okay. All right. <laughs> but it was not significantly decreased. Not significantly decreased. Trending towards. But and that was only one week of treatment okay. too. So it is possible that these trends with more horses or more time would become significant over maybe three weeks or four weeks of treatment. Yeah, and I'm sure that people will be like, "Why didn't you do that?" And then. Um, I don't know if people realize how much research costs. Yeah. <laughs> it's very expensive. Like, what's about $100, $150 a day per horse? Yeah, crazy. And you plus, have to get those grants. Yeah, and plus other expenses. So, yeah, it's uh, it's very expensive to do long, long-term studies, unfortunately. We're always looking for donors, so if you'd like to donate to our research fund, we're happy to uh, yeah. accept the money. Because <laughs> a lot of this research is translational to humans, yeah, too. Totally. So. Yeah, totally. Especially if the, with the human obesity ec epidemic mm -hmm. in the United States, I think this a lot of this is translational. Super cool stuff. And I think the last thing that we can just kind of touch on maybe is so there's more metformin research. Yeah, so, you know... Um, if I've seen your horse for laminitis or insulin dysregulation, I've probably put it on metformin. Metformin is an anti-diabetic drug used in people all the time to help basically reduce blood glucose levels and improve insulin sensitivity. And so far in the horse, we have really conflicting evidence. So if you do a, a research search on metformin, you're going to find studies that show it works and you're going to find studies that show it does absolutely nothing. At the conference, there was a a talk, um, the talk that actually won the resident research award Ooh. that looked at using metformin in horses that were naturally insulin dysregulated and seeing how they responded to receiving metformin before performing an oral sugar test to basically see how well this works at reducing blood glucose and insulin levels. Arching theme of that study is that it really wasn't effective but if they broke all the horses down and looked at them individually, there was one horse that it worked really well in. So kind of the take home of that was, this was a small group of horses. They were only treated for a shorter period of time. It may not work in a, a percentage of horses, but it may work in some. It could still be a pretty good drug for some horses. Do you think clinically we should probably, if we put your horse on metformin, ideally we'd want to retest them? Yeah, so this study kind of showed, you know, maybe if we are planning to do metformin as a treatment, we could perform an oral sugar test a week after starting treatment to see if, if, they're, if they've improved. I think that would be pretty useful. We can do that on the farm too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, okay. And, but the test is, to be honest, is not... The test is also not very good. Oh, no. Now what are we <laughs> so, going to do? If you look at the oral sugar test, you will find some studies that say it's very good and other studies that show 0% sensitivity. Zero? Zero. I didn't know it was zero. <laughs> oh, no. So, take all of that oh. <laughs> as you will. So maybe they didn't use the right test? Um, potentially, but... For metformin, we do think it works within the GI tract, so mm -hmm. using the oral sugar test is probably the best test for metformin. Okay. Because it works in the because GI tract. Because it works in the GI tract. Because it's not absorbed very well. Not very well, but yeah. we do think it has a first pass effect through the liver, and it could work directly in the liver. Okay. Back to the liver for everything. Back to the liver. Liver is the workhorse of the horse. Have you ever eaten liver? No. It is gross. It <laughs> doesn't look appetizing. Uh, it's not appetizing. I had it in a breakfast when I was in New Orleans once. Apparently it's a dish down in New Orleans. 
it tasted like iron, like iron, and like when you know what the liver it's does. Yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, <laughs> I thought I'd try it. I'm always willing to try new foods, but that is a food I'm never gonna try again. Especially when you know what yeah. the liver does. Yeah, it, it just tastes like metal right in your mouth. It's it is really gross. The take-home message is that this conference, some most of this research is probably not clinically applicable. Most of it, like it's gonna be. Right? It will be eventually. It's, 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 it's not benchtop research. It's beyond benchtop. So benchtop is when you do it on a test tube, and like that's not, and it's not in mouse models or rat models. Most of it is done in horses, but we're probably a couple years away from some of this research being done again mm -hmm. to continue to like understand yeah. and validate it. How and a lot of this stuff isn't. Some of it is published. A lot of it's not even published yet. It's what they've just done in the last few years yeah. and presenting and still trying to figure figure things out well I think that goes back to our study on peer review right mm -hmm. like this is one of the processes of peer review that you present an abstract uh, before you publish and people come to the conference and pick apart your paper and ask you why you did those statistics versus statistics I love going to poster sessions um, to and people don't like when I roll up because I start asking lots of questions and people are pretty nervous usually but um, <laughs> It's super fun. Some of the questions, yeah, you feel bad for some of the presenters. Yeah, but it's part of the process. It is part of the usually process. Usually, some of it is valid. As you know, yeah. why did you do that study that yeah. way? Would you believe that I even go to Heather's, who's a psychologist? I go to her poster sessions yeah. also, and read them and ask them why they did that. <laughs> and these are like. PhD students, they're not very old, so here here I come in like, I don't know if that's the right statistical analysis, why did you choose that one? And uh, yeah, they get a little nervous sometimes, but it's good, that's the point of research, right, is to be is to be pushed um, to, to try to say, you know, I think it's better than someone's just opinion uh, on an internet website. Yeah, yeah. and these, these conferences are really good because you get to see all of the expert opinions yeah still not really knowing on some of these topics yeah and I think, we're still trying to figure it out I think that's so key <laughs> in veterinary medicine or in all medicine is we don't know everything right and there's no definitive black and white COVID times I always bring it back to COVID but I learned a lot about people's understanding of science is that people wanted an answer it was scary and they just wanted like yes this works like I this one person lived because they got ivermectin and now like you have new research out, like out of the New England Journal of Medicine, that showed no difference with 12,000 patients. So I think it's important that, you know, we don't take everything as truth. And even if one vet said it this way, they could be wrong. New research comes out. So yeah, everything is constantly changing. And I, I know that is scary for a lot of people. As veterinarians, that's the world we live in. Yeah. I, I love it. Yeah. I, I love the uncertainty. Things change from two or three years ago that you yeah. used to practice, and it's not the case anymore. So. Yeah, and that's why we go to these conferences, talk to people, and you know. So next week, what do we want to talk about? Some other talks at ACVIM were about EDM and EMND, so equine degenerative myeloencephalopathy and equine motor neuron disease. Ooh, two and good, yeah. Similar but very different. So and could play back to our, some of our muscle mm -hmm. neurologic diseases, EPM, kind of all get kind of round up into that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I think that would be a good topic. Well, everyone, um, oh, just a PSA, it's July 1st, so July this weekend, people will be celebrating the Independence Day, which means um, there'll be a lot of fireworks going off. If you have a horse or horses that are scared of loud noises, um, there are products you can get from your veterinarian to sedate them ahead of time, so we don't have to go out at one o'clock on July 3rd and sew your horse up.
ask your veterinarian for some products to help with the sedation, maybe cotton balls in the ears, some uh, loud fan on, blowing on them, that kind of stuff. Uh, we do see horses get tangled in fences this time of year. And um, yeah, and there's nothing worse than going out to a farm when everyone's drunk and can't hold their horse and we're putting it back together. Make your veterinarian happy and not send us out on the weekend.